So Jonah chapter 1. The bad news is that I don't have my stopwatch with me. <laughs> I was reading Acts a couple of weeks ago, and there's a verse in Acts 19 when, when Paul was preaching in Ephesus. And it says in Acts 19, he went into the synagogue and preached for three months. <laughs> I thought that's, that's a long sermon. Um, but we'll hopefully behave ourselves regarding time. Jonah chapter 1. And I'm going to just read the first six chapters. Or sorry, the first six verses, sorry. <laughs> that would have been a good trick. Um, and I'm not going to go much beyond the first half a dozen verses. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each one cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us, and we will not perish. So you've known this story probably for a long, long time. Jonah and the call of, of God on his life to go and preach to the people of Nineveh. A city that according to chapter 4 at that time had about 120,000 people living in it. And a city where there was a lot of wickedness, a lot of idolatry. And God called Jonah to go and bring his word to that city. And Jonah not only ignores God's call, but he tries to run away from God. Which is an incredibly stupid thing to do because most people, even if they, they, they're not that familiar with some of, the, some of the, the words that theologians kick around, there's a word omnipresent that means God is everywhere all the time and to try and run away from him is a sort of a daft idea. But we do daft things sometimes when we're, when we're living in rebellion against God and we're, we're refusing to listen to his voice, we sometimes do really silly things. And Jonah's trying to do a really dumb thing here by running away from God. And whenever you're trying to run from God, you will always find a boat to take you further away. Jonah, conveniently, when he gets to the port, there's a boat that can take him further away from God. And when, when you've got a course of action in your heart that is contradictory to the course of action that God would have your life follow you will find things that will take you further away from him. Don't allow the presence of a boat that's going away from God to cause you to think, oh, this must be a good thing. This boat just conveniently happened to be here. What I'm, what I'm doing must be all right. Otherwise, there would not have been a boat. If you're on a course headed away from God, there'll always be plenty of things there to take you even further away. Jonah, of course, finds the boat and he gets into the boat and away they go and God sends the storm and Jonah manages to sleep right through it. And uh, I, was, I was typing up at this last night and Rach came over to say goodnight to me and she looked over my shoulder and she saw a heading that said, what other sleepers do we know? And she laughed and said, Ashley. <laughs> so 
I told you. <laughs> he, he, he was up at 4 a.m. for a flight this morning, so he's going to have to be on his toes now. Um, but I was thinking of all the sleepers in the Bible. There are a lot of sleepers in the Bible. And most people in the Bible who are sleeping, sleep is not a bad thing. But most of the people in the Bible who are sleeping are sleeping at a time that they should be awake. Frequently, that's the context in which you read of people sleeping in the Bible. In Judges 16, Samson is asleep whenever Delilah is cutting his hair and the Philistines are coming in to get him. In Matthew 26, the disciples in the garden are sleeping. Jesus said to them, I want you to stay awake. I want you to watch a while. I want you to pray. But they fall asleep. And then there's a guy in Acts chapter 20 who must have been subject to one of Paul's long sermons. There's a guy called Eutychus. And he's sitting on the upper level of a house during a a long sermon that Paul was given. And he copes and falls over and dies. (laughs) And then he's, he's raised from the dead. There's loads of occasions in the Bible where you read of people sleeping when they should not be sleeping. And Jonah should not be sleeping on this occasion. What made him sleepy? As I was thinking... I've had this passage, we, we read this just in our discipleship group a few weeks ago, and I've had this thought in my mind for a few weeks. What made, it, what made him sleepy? What caused him to get to the point that even in the middle of that storm, he could be fast asleep and oblivious to what was going on around him? And all we really know about Jonah is, is, is a couple of things. The first one is this. He is indifferent to the state of the lost world around him. Put in simpler terms, he doesn't give a monkeys about lost people. He doesn't care. God has called him to go and bring the, the message of God's goodness and love to this rebellious city in the hope that they would repent and that God would have mercy on them. <clears throat> but Jonah doesn't care. He doesn't care about them. And I think his, his general apathy towards people, his indifference His lack of concern and compassion is one of the factors that caused him to get sleepy. He wasn't really that bothered. In fact, when you read at the end of the story of Jonah in chapter 4, Jonah is really annoyed about a plant. He gets this plant that grows and shades him from the sun and then the plant is, is eaten by a worm and he's really annoyed about his plant. But he doesn't care about 120,000 people in a city who are going to die in rebellion against God. And that lack of concern makes him sleepy. Do we care? Do we really care about the lost? Or do we think that there are certain people in the church whose ministry is to reach out to the lost and there are others and it's not their ministry? I'd have to confess that years ago I would have held that attitude and I would have been quite happy to go to church and to worship And to listen to preaching, I would have been quite happy to have like a teaching ministry myself and go around different places and hanging out with Christians and teaching them the Bible. That floats my boat and I would have enjoyed that. And I wasn't that concerned really about the lost. And I would have made the excuse and said, well, I'm not really an evangelist. That's not my gift. There are evangelists in the church and I'm not not one of them. But that is wrong. Every single follower of Jesus must be concerned about the lost world around them. Otherwise, we will start to nod off to sleep. Even in the midst of storms and in the midst of people who are dying in despair and hopelessness, we won't care about them. We'll just slumber along. 
days and the weeks going by, do we think we're better than those people? I think sometimes that can creep into our hearts that we somehow think we are better than the lost people and therefore we should not mingle with them and be in among them. We have an attitude as, as long as I'm okay, as long as me and God are okay, I'll just stay inside the boat and sleep and hope that the storm passes. The storm will never pass. It will rage <laughs> for the rest of, of time, this storm. But we sometimes think, as long as I'm all right, there are Christians who go after the lost and there are Christians who don't. And, and I'll stay in that category and I will just be content to turn up at church, say my prayers, try to do things right, but not really care about the world around me. And this was the attitude that Jonah had. As long as I'm okay, as long as I'm safe, I'll just go and sleep until the storm passes. So he was indifferent. He didn't care. Do you care about people around you? When, you, when you're walking up the street or driving through the town or getting your hair cut or buying groceries, do you look at people and wonder what's going on in their lives? Or is that person at the till just your slave for those few moments? Or do you actually, is there compassion within you? Is there concern? Jonah didn't care. <clears throat> And another thing that made him sleepy was that he was, he was disobedient. He threw a bit of a tantrum at God. He was like a stroppy child. Not only did he refuse to do what God asked him to do, he actually went in the opposite direction. Have you ever had a child who's so just ticked off when you ask them to do something that it's, they don't only ignore you, but they, they, they go in the direct opposite of what you have asked them to do? Just a full-on flipping tantrum. And that's what Jonah does here. He's indifferent and he's disobedient. What makes us sleepy? Are you aware of things that make you sleepy? Um, <clears throat> physically, just in the normal sort of day-to-day -day things that, that cause you to get sluggish and heavy-eyed, and also on a spiritual level. Screens make me really sleepy. You know, just a, a while at the laptop or TV or in the cinema, I come out of the cinema and I'm like, flip, you know, all this bright light and, and people and stuff. You, you, screens and, and stimulation can make you tired and lethargic. And again, I say I don't want about the kids this morning because they're not here. Um, but the, if you, you, you stick a, a, an iPad in front of a child for more than maybe about 20 minutes at a time, and you're going to have carnage on your hands because it is amazing how screens will cause children to get really snappy and grumpy and tired and irritable. Your diet can make you sleepy. There was a preacher called... Jonathan Edwards, during the Great Awakening in the United States, about probably nearly 300 years ago now. No, maybe nearly, yeah, maybe nearly 300 years ago. And uh, he, would, he would keep this, this journal, a very, very disciplined man. And there was an entry in his journal one day where he noted that he was finding it difficult to stay awake in the evening and read. He wanted to read and he wanted to pray and he wanted to study. And he was really sluggish and heavy-eyed. And he'd had something different for dinner that night. And he took note of it in his journal. Whatever he'd had, must not eat again in the evening. <laughs> because he realized this thing caused him to get sluggish and sleepy. The wrong atmosphere can make you sleepy. And here we're moving sort of from a, an overlap between the physical and the spiritual. It is warm in here this morning. Scott's gone. <laughs> Somebody get the message to Scott that it's got warm. Or maybe even open that back door. Or you'll all be sleepy. It's not usually like this. Um, 
The wrong atmosphere can make you sleepy. If you're too warm, if you're in a place where there's no fresh air, where it's stuffy, that's what happened to Eutychus whenever Paul was preaching an act. It says in that passage, there were a lot of lamps burning and the fumes from the lamps caused him to get drowsy and heavy-eyed and he, and he fell asleep big time. But take that into a spiritual realm where there's no freshness, there's no fresh air. We can get very sleepy and sluggish. It's where we desperately need the Spirit to breathe on us, especially when we're gathered together like this. That we make space for the Holy Ghost and we allow Him to bring that breath of freshness into the atmosphere and to stir us out of our sluggishness. So uh, an atmosphere that's stuffy and warm can make you sleepy. An atmosphere that's too cold. I go into comedy degree of yawning if I'm really cold. You just yawn, yawn, yawn. You just repeatedly, just like you just did there, over and over again, yawn after yawn after yawn. If I'm really cold, my body just seems to respond by yawning somehow. It means it thinks that it'll heat up by yawning or something. And if we have a cold atmosphere that is hard and lifeless, Likewise, there'll be a sleepiness and there'll be a sluggishness that can creep in. Inactivity can make you sleepy. It's bizarre, but you'd sort of think to yourself that being inactive counts as rest and therefore you shouldn't feel sleepy. But the more inactive you are, sometimes the more sleepy you get. Proverbs says in in 1915 that laziness brings on deep sleep. Sometimes you do nothing for a few hours and at the end of it you don't feel any better. You feel worse. You feel really sluggish and heavy-eyed. Whereas if you sort of keep active and keep busy and on the move, you feel a lot fresher. You know, if you see someone who's been inactive for a few hours, say you walk past the window and you see a figure on the couch and an hour later you walk past and the figure's still there, you think maybe that person is asleep. But if you walk past two or three days later and they're, they're still there, it's going to be more serious than that. You know, maybe they're dead. <laughs> so there's, there's the inactivity of sleep and there is the inactivity of, of death. Is that person okay? Haven't moved much lately. Is that Christian all right? They don't seem that active. Maybe they're just sleeping. But it's been a long time since they've been active. Maybe they're dead. <laughs> The sleepiness, the slumber that comes over us. And again, for us, just like Jonah, we will, I believe, fall into a spiritual sleep if we don't care about the lost. I think one of the greatest ways to rouse your own spirit to life and to a state of, of wakefulness is to actually live with purpose and intention about lost people, about loving them. You know, and, and again, don't don't fall into the the mindset that that means you must get them and preach to them and get them converted in one conversation. That's not what I mean. I mean, building relationship, friendship, just taking an interest in people's lives. What about you? Having a cup of coffee with them. Being intentional about where you go to, to do your business transactions and things like that so you can build relationships and get to know people over a period of time. But if you don't care about lost people, again, this indifference, this sleepiness will creep in. You realize that you don't know when you're asleep. You never lie in bed at night in the middle of a long, deep sleep thinking to yourself, boy, this is powerful sleep. Ever. You know, you're not aware of it. You're gone. You don't know that you're sleeping. In fact, while you're sleeping, you may be dreaming that you're awake and thinking that you're doing something really good, but you're not. I think there are a lot of dreamers sometimes in the church who think 
They have it in their head that they're doing something useful, but they're not really. They're sleeping. There's a great quote. I don't know who it was, but but you know, dreamers or some people dream of changing the world, and others wake up and do it. Whenever you're asleep, you don't know you're asleep. It's the danger of it, spiritually speaking. You can slip slip into this deep slumber and not actually be aware of it. You can be daydreaming spiritually that everything's okay and that it's not. Also, when you're sleeping, you're not conscious of what's going on around you. I have slept through thunderstorms. I've gone into school the next day and people say, did you hear the thunder last night? I'm like, nah, (laughs) didn't hear it. You're unconscious. Physically, you're, you're not aware of your surroundings and spiritually as well. If you're in this state of sleep, which is a dangerous place to be, you're not aware of what's going on around you. You're not aware of the lost world. You're not aware of the people in Nineveh or Tandragee or Portadown or wherever. You're not aware of them. You're unconscious to it because you've fallen into sleep. You're unresponsive to small things. Apparently, I snore. I've never witnessed it, so I dispute it. Only sometimes, right? Belinda has a way of dealing with it. That's gentle. I never, I don't think she's ever, maybe only occasionally, but she doesn't wake me up when I'm snoring. It's just a wee, you know, we dig with the elbow, we dig with the heel, and I will roll over and just continue sleeping, and the snoring will stop. Is that true? Um, when you're asleep, small things don't really disturb you. Now, if somebody came into the room and, and fired a shotgun over the bed, then you're going to wake up. That's a big thing. When you're spiritually asleep, small things don't affect you. And things that should grieve you, little sins, little attitudes, mindsets that should affect you, don't affect you because you're sleeping. And you maybe just sort of shake yourself a little bit and roll over and go back to sleep. Sleep is a dangerous place to be because we start to accommodate or we start to be oblivious to little things that really should be grieving us. And I'm having a bit of an internal debate myself just in terms of conversations because sometimes I'm talking to people and they'll say that what they've been doing or whatever and inside I'm thinking, how does that not grieve you? But I don't say it. (laughs) I'm getting dangerously close to starting to just say it. How, how, how do these little things, and, and I, I say this to myself as well, these little things, once you start to tolerate things that you know are offensive to God, you're in a dangerous place. You're asleep. You're just turning a blind eye. Things that used to grieve you, things that used to trouble you and cause you to wake up and shake yourself, you now just roll over and go back to sleep. You know, when I, when I come home in the evening, if I'm, if I'm home late and it's maybe the, the kids have gone to bed, but they're not, I'm not sure whether they're sleeping or not. Maybe about, I don't know, half nine or so and the girls have gone to their rooms, but I'm not sure if they're sleeping. I'll go and stand outside the door. This is sort of the, this unwritten code that we have. I, I'll stand outside the door. They hear my footsteps. And if they're awake, they start kicking the duvets about making a racket so that I know to go into them. Because I don't want to go barging in if they're sleeping. And the smallest thing, the smallest creak of a floorboard, footsteps in my bare feet, they will, they will hear it because they're awake. Whereas if I walk up to the door and I listen and I don't hear the, the bed sheets being kicked about, I know they've gone to sleep. They're no longer able to hear the little things. 
They're no longer able to hear the little things. And once you're asleep spiritually, it's amazing how many little things will go by you unnoticed. You're unconscious to them. You're unaware. Another thing that if you're asleep, you don't like being wakened. I don't recall ever hearing the sound of the alarm and thinking, oh, blessed noise. <laughs> and just saying, well, I'll just let the alarm clock run and I'll lie and listen to that, that beautiful sound for a while longer. What do you do with your alarm clock when you hear it? You reach out your arm and you hit it. <laughs> you don't like things that waken you up from sleep. Just where is that repeat button? You know, I remember wondering as a child, you know, this alarm, and I still have it, and this long button on the top of it, which was the snooze button. I remember thinking, why is it so big? You know, looking at this thing when I got it, thinking, all the other buttons are really small. Why is that button so big? And then I grew to realize why it's so big. So you can just you know, flap your hand about and, and hit it quite easily and knock the thing off for a while. We don't like being wakened up when we're asleep. And it's the same spiritually. It's the same spiritually. I don't know about you, but if I'm, if I'm slumbering spiritually and I'm listening to someone or I'm reading a book, or having a conversation with, with somebody in a, in a sort of a discipleship or a mentoring or an intimate context. And this, this happens to me sometimes at Forge whenever I'm over there and one of the guys will pull me aside and just start poking. And uh, your, your immediate instinct is to reach out your arm, <laughs> take a swing at them like the alarm clock, you know, because you don't like being poked when you're just content and comfortable and warm and snuggly. And then suddenly somebody makes a wee noise that disturbs you. Your instinct is to reach out and wallop them. That's the same in the church. So frequently when we hear something that pricks our hearts, we go into defensive mode and we start to criticize the source from which we heard it. And I do it too. Instead of standing back and saying, right, what is that actually about? You don't like being wakened. And whenever you're asleep, your words and your actions are meaningless. Talking in your sleep, nobody's listening. Well, sometimes. Um, nobody's listening. You're, you're, you're sleeping, you're talking, but your words are not achieving anything. Or you might even sleepwalk. I only recall ever sleepwalking once. Just this random experience when I was about 21 in my mum and dad's house, just suddenly realizing I am actually at the front door. <laughs> it's, it's pitch dark and I have no idea what's going on. You'll walk in your sleep and you'll talk in your sleep, but both will be useless actions. Nothing will be achieved. You talk in your sleep, no one's listening. You walk in the sleep, you're active, but you're not achieving anything. Sleep is a dangerous place to be spiritually. So I'm a bit hard on Jonah. Poor Jonah here just having a snooze in the boat during the storm. Didn't Jesus do the same thing? Like if, you, if you want, you can go to Mark chapter 4. I'll be popping back to Jonah to, to finish off in a minute or two. But in Mark chapter 4, at the end of the chapter, I've got a very similar account for what happens with Jesus and what happened with Jonah. I can't remember the name of it, but there is a 
There's a, a literary technique that's used in the Bible frequently where you read two things that are very, very similar. Remember Eugene teaching me this. And he said, whenever, whenever you read two accounts that are extremely similar, what the writer is inviting you to do is compare them and look for the differences, the very small differences. And whenever Jesus in, in verse 35 of Mark chapter 4 is in a boat, it sounds quite familiar to the story of Jonah. It says that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Sounds very familiar to the description of Jonah's boat. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. Again, sounds very familiar. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we perish or if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. And the wind died down, and it was completely calm. Very familiar account. But the differences tell you a lot about the heart of Jonah and the heart of Jesus. Jesus was sleepy in the boat because he had been busy about his father's work. There are, there are different types of tiredness. Sometimes people ask me how I am and I'll say to them, I'm tired, but it's a good tired. There's a tiredness that comes from stress, from rebelling against God, from burning the candle at both ends, from not living as you were designed to live. There's a tiredness that comes from that that's a bad tiredness. And then there's a tiredness that comes from serving God, from trusting Him and relying on Him, from being about His work. And that's a different tiredness. That's a tiredness that causes you to lay your head on the pillow at night content. Today was a good day. It was a busy day and I'm tired, but it was good. And Jesus had the tiredness of one who was serving God. Jonah had the tiredness of one who was rebelling against God. And was stressed and in turmoil because of it. Jesus was in a boat going across a lake for one man. The end of this passage, Jesus meets the man of Gadara that lived in the tombs. A guy that was demon possessed. He was self-harming. He was just a complete mess. Nobody would go near him. Jesus goes over. He sets that guy free. And then he gets in the boat and goes back again. He only goes across the lake for one person. He's about his father's business. He's compassionate. He hears the cry of that one person. Whereas Jonah is blocking out the cry of 120,000 people. And he's not interested in being about his father's business. So Jesus is having, I believe, a peaceful sleep of one who is in the will of God and about the work of God. Whereas Jonah is tossing and turning because of his rebellion against God. There's no peace in his sleep. <coughs> Jesus was obedient. And he was compassionate. And he was on mission. Jonah was disobedient. He didn't care about people. And he refused to go on the mission that God was calling him to. And Jesus, when he awoke, he stood over the storm and he commanded it to calm. Whereas when Jonah awoke, he basically tried to commit suicide. He was thrown into the storm. Very, very different stories. I want the sleep of Jesus. I don't want to burn myself out and I don't want to fall into a routine of ministry where you take way too much on and you believe that everything relies on you. I don't want to do that. That's a trap that many people get into and they burn out and I don't want to do that. And I want you to be able to call me out and people do call me out when I do get close to that. 
But I want to be able to sleep the sleep of one who is serving God, who's tired because he's living well, not because he's stressed and living in rebellion. One last thing I want to point out in Jonah. And I think this is a really powerful picture, and it's it's the thing that got me rooted into this passage a couple of weeks ago. In verse... You need to use your imagination here. Here we are back to imagination time. You need to picture the scene. I want you to see the boat and I want you to see the storm. I want you to see all the sailors and I want you to see Jonah. It says in verse 5, all the sailors were afraid. So on this boat, all these men, hardened men, tough guys, but they're afraid and they're so afraid they're throwing their cargo overboard. That's where the money is and they're chucking it overboard. They're terrified. So they are afraid. And each one is crying out to his own God. They are surrounded by this incredible storm. They know they can't survive it. They know they need something beyond themselves. And they are reaching out for anything they can to try and survive the storm. It says Jonah, the man of God. Jonah represents the church. The man of God, the woman of God, the person who has the truth, the person who has the life and the hope that all of those sailors need, he's sleeping. He's gone below deck and he's in a deep sleep. So you picture this. This is, this is the, the storm, the sailors I want to, the, the sailors to represent everyone who doesn't know Jesus, who are all the people in this town and beyond who are struggling to survive and get through life and they're terrified. They look tough and they act tough, but they're actually terrified. Those are the sailors. And in the middle of it, you have the people who have got the truth that can get others through the storm. But Jonah, representing the church, is asleep And you have this awful picture in verse 6 where the captain of these pagan sailors who don't know God, they come to the man of God and they say to him, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. I get that because I think that is the cry of the world. They don't know they're crying that. They're crying something. But the cry of the world to the church is, Would you please wake up and actually lay hold on God? Would you please show us what God is like? Because we're in a storm here. We are throwing everything away. We're crying out to all sorts of gods. People try to get through the storms of life. They they reach out and they hold loads of things. They drink too much and they take drugs and they... They, they numb themselves on excess of entertainment and they get involved in one bad relationship after another. And all of these things that they reach for, success and money and just and possessions and whatever, those are the gods that the sailors are crying to. And around us there are a host of people who are crying out to all these different gods and in the middle is the church. And what the people are actually saying to the church is, excuse me, could you actually at some stage wake up And show us what God is like. Because we need something here in this storm. And I think the church historically 
and still today, and it's as dangerous right here as it can be anywhere else, we fail to accurately show people what Jesus is like. It's amazing having conversations with people who, who don't follow Jesus and, and to just chat to them and find out what's going on. When you're doing a course, you can do that and you can make an excuse that you're doing a course so you need to talk about it with people. And I have yet to encounter anyone who hates Jesus. I've yet to encounter anyone who, who says even that Jesus didn't ever exist. Everybody has a problem with the church. <laughs> Because the church is not accurately representing Jesus. The church is not showing the world what Jesus is like. The church is asleep, having a good time, in the boat, snoozing, on their way to heaven, and not actually concerned about the storms or the cries of those around them who need truth and life and hope. And I want you to hear that. I want that to ring in your ears for a long time. The world, the captain coming and saying, wake up, we need you. It's not like other Christians or other people of God are saying to Jonah, we need to wake up. The unsaved are saying, we need you to wake up. The world needs us to wake up. And Tandragee needs us to wake up and to actually be the people of God in the midst of the storm and show them what his character is like. There's a lovely uh, exchange or, or incident that takes place in John chapter 12 where some Greek guys come to Philip. Philip is one of Jesus' disciples. And they go to Philip, and again, I want you to get this. This is what the world is saying. Everybody we visited on Thursday night, this is what they're saying. They won't put it quite like this, but within them, this is the cry. John chapter 12, these guys come to Philip, and they say, we would like to see Jesus. That is the unspoken cry of this lost world. We would like to see Jesus. We don't want rules. We don't want steps for how to live a better life. We don't want legalism. We don't want you to force your dress code on us. We don't want you to expect our lives to somehow change overnight. We don't want to be the same as you are. We want to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. And it's really interesting, these guys, why they actually seek out Philip. Philip is Greek. His name is a Greek name. It means lover of horses or something random like that. His name is a Greek name. And they go to him and ask him about Jesus. They don't go to the Pharisees. They don't go to the religious leaders. They don't go to the synagogue. Now get this, they go to Philip. Because there's a, there's a chain here. There is Jesus... And on the other side, there are these Greek guys who want to see Jesus. Who are they going to ask? They don't go to the religious leaders because they know the religious leaders don't actually know Jesus. They go to Philip because Philip is a connection from them to Jesus. He's Greek. They're Greek. They have a connection with Philip. He knows Jesus. He has a connection with Jesus. So they go to Philip and ask him. If somebody wanted to know about me, they might ask Linda. They're not going to go and ask somebody that does not know me and cannot accurately describe what I'm like. They'll ask Linda. And likewise, they're not going to ask you know, someone that they don't know. If somebody wants to know what I'm like, they're going to have to ask somebody who knows what I'm like. All right? So 
Someone, let, let's say Reuben wants to know me and he will ask Linda what I'm like. Linda will tell him what I'm like because he has a connection with Linda. He knows her and she has a connection with me. That's why these guys go to Philip. They have a connection with Philip because they're Greeks. Philip has a connection with Jesus. They know this guy knows Jesus and will be able to show them what Jesus is like. And the church has got to take up that middle ground where we have a connection with culture instead of looking down our noses at people and condemning the way they live, that we actually build relationship with them. It's what we're aiming to do on Wednesday nights, what we're aiming to do on Friday nights, what we're aiming to do on Thursday mornings, building connections with the culture, with the community. Once they have a connection with us, then they can find out what Jesus is like if we have a connection with him. You see the, the, the chain. And we've got to get real about presenting him to people and letting them see what he is actually like. Jonah failed massively. Cute little story that, that, that sometimes we look at when we're very young and don't really get into the horror of it. Jonah was a flipping brute. <laughs> he was a nasty piece of work. Nasty piece of work. And don't, don't ever belittle how dangerous it is to hear the call of God and say, no, thank you. When God calls you, it's, it's not a polite request. It's not a, oh, God, I'd rather not do that. I'll just, I'll go to heaven, do that, but I'd rather not do that other thing in between. God is not pleased with Jonah. When it says that a storm came, it actually says God hurled the storm onto the sea as if God just lifted it up and bang. How dare you? Dare you hear my call and the privilege of bringing my life to these people and you just ignore it? One last passage in, in Zechariah. You're in, you're in the Minor Prophets. If you're in Jonah, turn right and you'll get to Zechariah. Verse 8, or chapter 8, sorry, and verse 23. <clears throat> I don't know how I'm doing with time. Zechariah 8.23. Zechariah is one of those books of the Bible that in anyone that follows a reading plan will probably only hit this once a year. But I remember one year reading this and this, this verse at the end of Zechariah 8 just caught me and I thought, that's it. <laughs> that's, that's what we want. It says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, ten men from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. Let me bring that into the church context. People from all backgrounds outside of the church, outside of the people of God. These languages and nations are Gentiles outside of God's people. They will come and take hold of one Christian, one person from the family of God and say, can we please be with you? Because we've heard that God is with you. We need to see God. And we know that God is with you. So can we come and be with you? So that we can see and experience your God. To challenge you, one more thing about sleep. Sleep deprivation is a torture technique you'll sometimes hear of. Where someone who has been kidnapped or taken hostage, prisoner of war, and the enemy wants them to talk and will keep them awake for days. Just continual 
bombarding them with loud noises, music, screens, uh, caffeine. Anytime they get anywhere close to sleep, poking them and making them stay awake. And once that's happened for a few days, they're so broken and so desperate for sleep that they'll spill and say what, what it is that the enemy wants them to say frequently. Can I just tell you in advance, if you want to come here and sleep, I will torture you. I will poke you again and again and again and again. I will not let you sleep spiritually. And many others will back me up and stand with me and they'll poke you as well. We will not allow this place to be a place where people can come and fall into spiritual sleep. That will not happen here. Because we don't want to be sleeping in the boat while the world needs to see God. It won't happen here. So if you come here and you want to sleep spiritually and just continue in a slumbered attitude towards Jesus and towards the world, I will torture you to the point that you will probably leave. (laughs) Because I won't have it. Because I take seriously the fact that I'll stand before God. And I don't want God to say to me, do you see that person that came to the, 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 the church that you were shepherding? That person came and their spiritual state was a very sleepy one and you never tried to wake them up. You never poked them. I'll torture you. You will experience sleep deprivation here if that's what you're after in your Christian life. It is really important to stay awake for two reasons. One, it's harvest time. And two, it is wartime. Proverbs 10 says that he that sleeps during harvest time is a disgraceful son. If dad's out working in the fields and some teenager is lying at home on their Xbox or having a snooze, that's a disgraceful son who isn't out working with his father. In harvest time, you cannot sleep. And in wartime, you cannot sleep. Jesus tells a story in Mark about how an enemy came while men slept and sowed weeds among the wheat. It is harvest time and it is war time, and God's people need to be awake and alert. The world around us, folks, is in a storm. If you can't see it, you're beyond sleep. You're actually dead. If you cannot look at this broken world and see that people need hope and they need life and they need Jesus, if that is something that you're not even aware of, you're dead. There's a major problem here. But the world needs to see a church that is accurately representing Jesus. How awful it is to think that there could be people in this town who would need to come to us and shake us and say, would you not wake up please and call on your God so we can see what he's like? That's not going to happen. My challenge is that we would stay awake. If you're sleeping, wake up. If you're slumbering, wake up. And let's stay awake and let's be the people like Philip that others can come to and say, listen, I I really want to see Jesus. I know you know Jesus. Can you show me him? Let's not be the people like Jonah who hide in our lovely little church and sleep while all around us people are screaming and crying out to all sorts of things to get through the storm. I want to sing that song again at some stage, maybe not right now, but at some stage just as, as we worship. It was a good song to start with, fall afresh. Come and wake me from my sleep. Yeah. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you, Lord, that you will not let us sleep.
Lord, poke us. We give you permission this morning. I give you permission, even if nobody else does, to poke us, Lord. And stir us up, Father. Because we're surrounded by people who are desperate to see you. They don't realize it, but they're desperate to see you. And we don't want to be the Jonah in the boat snoozing, looking after ourselves, oblivious to the whole thing. We want to be aware of it. We want to be broken by it, Lord. We want to be the Phillips of this world. Lord, help us to maintain that strong connection with the vine and so that your life flows to us. But God, there's another side to it. Help us, help us to build relationships with broken people, Lord. Help us to, to stop being aloof and arrogant and trying to think that somehow we would be on a different level from them. But Lord, I pray you would help us to, to weave our lives into their lives to love them and to trust them and to be trusted by them to the point that if they ever realize that what they need is to see Jesus, they will know where to come to ask. So Lord, do awaken us from our sleep. Holy Spirit, do come and blow through the caverns of our souls. Bring that freshness. And Lord, let this not be a message that results in condemnation for those who maybe are aware that they've been slumbering, but let it be, let it be a message of challenge, a message of a calling to wake up and to be the people of God, not a message of condemnation. Let this be a key moment for some of us, Lord, to make decisions and to put things in place. Lord, you never slumber and you never sleep. And although our bodies need sleep, our spirits do not. And we should never sleep spiritually, ever. So come and breathe on us, Holy Ghost. As we, as we worship you, as we place ourselves before you, we invite you to come. Thank you, Jesus.